the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. It was the worst day in the entire history of the British Army. 57,000 casualties, an unimaginable human tragedy. We've been starting to try and work out its causes, and we've seen that they go back to fundamental weaknesses at the heart of the British Army. Before the war, the British Army had completely failed to understand the importance of new weapons, which had for decades made defending far stronger than attacking. By 1916, trench warfare in particular had been around for 60 years. But the British generals hadn't yet worked out any viable tactics for dealing with it. There was in fact something deeply wrong with the way the British Army went about facing anything new. And the fundamental difficulty was that there were too many British officers who completely refused to take orders. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Unlike the Royal Navy, the British Army proved itself over the course of decades incapable of taking new ideas on board. And at the heart of the problem was that too many men in the army refused to take orders. Refused to take orders? Yep, that's right. The British Army refused to take orders. Not the rank and file, you understand, who were executed for any refusal to march into a hail of bullets, but the officers. And the reason was that they regarded themselves as... Gentlemen. Gentlemen. And gentlemen could not be bossed around. Now, historian Amy Fox is sympathetic to the army. But her work has shown that the army's senior officers strongly shared the ethos of the English gentleman. He was an amateur, a sportsman. As in hunting, shooting and fishing. He was proud of his own virtue and the belief that everyone played by the rules of the game. But crucially, all this left him offended, deeply offended, if he was presented with any kind of command. You see, nobody could order a gentleman about. British gentleman officers were in fact rather proud of the tradition that they muddled through. It was an expression that had been invented in the Boer War. Unlike the German army or the French army, there was no general staff until 1906. In other words, no group of senior officers set up to organise things. And even when the general staff came into existence, it was given very few powers. As a consequence, the British Army always completely refused to lay out what was known in military circles as doctrine, in other words, general principles for fighting. Uh, the excuse was always that it, it faced too many different kinds of warfare around the vast British Empire. No one method doctrine would fit it all. But of course, that should have called for more doctrine, not less. Guidance for each situation, not guidance for none. Above all, by 1914, the British Army had for nearly 10 years been actively campaigning and planning for a war against Germany in northern France. We talked about it in our series on the coming of war in 1914. Yeah, all those cycling holidays to check out the lie of the land. Well, here, if nowhere else, you would have expected it to have established some guiding principles. But they hadn't. And the real problem was 
you couldn't lay down theoretical principles because telling officers what to do was regarded as ungentlemanly. Ungentlemanly. After war broke out, this bumbling amateurishness was a complete disaster. Not surprised. Once the broad overall strategy had been decided, for example, that there would be a large-scale attack on the Germans on the Somme in July 1916, commanding generals could do no more than divide up the battlefront objectives between their subordinates and then tell them the time and date for the kick-off of the battle and then leave the rest up to them. They could make recommendations, of course, but nobody could order officers what weapons to use or how to use them or how to organise their men because they were gentlemen. You couldn't order them about. Now, apologists for the British Army in this period like to claim that carrying this cadre of self-important English gentlemen... Many of them, in fact, like Douglas Haig, were Scots. Yeah, so British gentlemen didn't, in practice, make the British Army any less nimble or open to new ideas. Don't know how they can claim that, but anyway, it's an interpretation that became popular among military historians in the 1990s and 2000s. Amy Fox, for example, points out that the army tried publishing pamphlets and employing liaison officers and sending officers on away days to try to encourage new thinking. Well, she believes this shows an army keen to learn. It was, she believes, brilliantly, if a little laboriously, open to new ideas. But anyone who's worked in a big corporation knows none of this amounts to a hill of beans. When you look more closely, what Amy Fox's evidence shows is in fact exactly the opposite. The British Army was so riddled with rigid codes of gentlemanly behaviour that it was impossible to do anything except, well, politely and in a rather roundabout way, suggest new ideas and, well, hope that officers might eventually believe they thought them up themselves. Like dealing with the top management. <laughs> Is that like BBC? Pamphlets, liaison, away days, they were all advisory and, of course, they were widely ignored. What you discover is that the British Army had no formal procedure for enforcing best practice and that's crucial. That was wholly because nobody could tell British gentlemen what to do. Historian Robert Foley has shown that the contrast with the German army was so extreme it's hard not to laugh or cry. The Germans put enormous stress on new ideas. By May 1916 the Germans had for example developed a method of John, I'm going to need your help here. Of Sturmabteilungen. I don't know why I need John to do the German. But these were small attacking squads with small arms and grenades. Stormtroopers is what it translates. They then taught this method in formal classes to their troops and ordered, note the word ordered, each division to set up its own squads to do the same. Now, it was something the British Army had also begun to think about and that might have saved many lives on the Somme. But as Foley points out, the British did it completely unsystematically, each commander deciding whether he was going to do it or not, and by 1916 had hardly got anywhere with it. Just a fortnight after the fighting had finally petered out on the Somme, the Germans drew up a new document. It was called Principles for the Conduct of the Defensive Battle in Position Warfare. It was about trench warfare, how to defend trenches. It incorporated already the technical lessons they'd learned from the battle. They then set up two schools actually on the Western Front to teach its lessons. By 1916, the French 
who of course have always respected ideas and thinkers, well, unlike, the British. unlike the British, were not far behind the Germans in their formal approach to learning about new weapons and methods. To make the British situation worse, as historian Tim Travers has written, quotes, there was a strong tendency, firstly, to cover up errors during the war. No, no surprise there. Secondly, to alter the military record. And thirdly, to achieve alterations in the subsequent official history. You just couldn't make it up, could you? What if they did? <laughs> they did. As we shall see, indeed. So the short-sightedness and errors of the British gentlemen who were in command during the First War were consistently covered up both at the time and subsequently. They were sort of lost in a haze of half-truths and excuses, a bit like the smoky fog of a gentleman's club they were so used to. It was no wonder the British officers couldn't or wouldn't work out how to avoid the mass slaughter of their men at the hands of the Germans. Amy Fox shows that over 40% of senior British officers came from landed families, and over 75%, three quarters, from just six public schools, including, of course, Eton and Harrow. Many had been together through staff college. Many were related to each other. Many went hunting together, belonged to the same gentlemen's clubs and churches. Historian Tim Travers goes further, quotes, senior army officers, the aristocracy and the royal family seem to own the late Victorian army, he writes. It was all about, quotes, patronage and social connections. As the army's own official historian wrote privately to a friend, looking back many years later, quotes, In 1914, the army was still very feudal. Great personages, even great ladies, exercised the higher patronage, decided what jobs you got. And that, of course, was a guy called Edmonds. He'd been a senior officer when the British army had first gone to France and Belgium in 1914, so he knew what he was talking about. Well, the result was completely predictable. Ten years before the war, the Isha Committee was set up by the War Office to reorganise the British Army after the disaster of near defeat in the Boer War. Lord Isha concluded that it was, I can't believe this, almost impossible to find any competent officers in senior positions in the British Army. You see, those who got the jobs got them because of who they knew. Or as a later commander of the British Army of the Rhine, General Sir John Hackett, described the British Army in the First World War, quotes, its officer corps was still the preserve of young men of good social standing who had the outlook of amateurs, which is what they mostly were. They were ill-paid and so had to be of independent means. This means, he goes on, they were hard to teach and <laughs> many were unteachable. Oh they, were, they were not well-trained and they were expected to be neither industrious nor particularly intelligent. And he goes on even further. As a foreign observer put it, among the officers in the British Army, bravery had often to compensate for lack of ability. Bravery had often to compensate for lack of ability. Which is why one of the deepest causes of the catastrophe on the Somme in July 1916 was the British Army's failure to learn. To learn either from the decades of trench warfare before 1914 or from its experiences of trench warfare in the two years of war before the Battle of the Somme. Its gentlemen officers were so preoccupied with snobbery, well, let's call it that, and class, that they couldn't be told what to do, and they repeatedly ignored new technology and new thinking. Worse, they treated these with scorn. Well, there are lots of examples, but the most obvious and most shocking for the Battle of the Somme, of course, was the machine gun. 
It's an extraordinary story. The British Army, having failed to grasp the nature of modern mechanised defensive trench warfare before the war, then conspicuously failed to learn much at all from the two years of fighting before the Somme in 1916. Since it had no formal mechanisms for enforcing best practice, its officers just went on muddling through in their own individual gentlemanly and amateur ways. And this would be, as we shall see, a fundamental reason for the catastrophic British failure on the Somme in 1916. Well, the first and obviously important example is the machine gun, which wreaked terrible havoc on the British infantry at the Somme. Hiram Maxim, an, an American, had invented the machine gun in England in 1884. Note, in England. Yeah, as we've seen, of course, the Germans took it up and by 1914 were stockpiling it in huge numbers. The British Army had belatedly and reluctantly purchased one or two for each battalion. Now, First World War machine guns were difficult things to use. She says with great authority. Yes, of course. They were heavy and had to be taken apart to move. The barrels overheated and had to be changed, and they had to have a liquid cooling system. Yeah, I remember my grandfather talked about how if the cooling system got overheated and they had no water available, they had to pee in the bottle in order to keep the guns cool. I remember you saying that. The belts of cartridges had to be properly loaded or they got stuck, shot too quickly and they wasted bullets, aimed straight ahead, they were 90% less effective than aimed diagonally across an attacking enemy. Yeah, that's the deadly crossfire that I was first shown by an old soldier on the battlefield at Serre, and which the Germans all too clearly understood. The British Army would apparently never have bothered at all to develop the proper use of machine guns were it not for an ex-army chauffeur called Major Christopher Baker Carr. It's a really extraordinary story, but completely typical of those who try to innovate within the British Army. You read this kind of story over and over. Writing in 1929, Baker Carr apologised that he still couldn't tell the whole truth because so many of the generals who'd blocked him from 1914 to 1916 were still alive and could still pull powerful strings. Now, Baker Carr was what was called an old dugout. That was what they called soldiers who'd been dragged out of retirement at the start of the war. He'd been doing a bit of teaching at the Army School of Musketry in Hythe, Kent, and had taken a particular interest in machine guns. When war broke out, he was called to go to France as a major in the 7th Division. Well, straight away, Baker Carr pleaded with his commanding officers to double the number of machine guns from two to four or one and a half to three. Better late than never. Uh, but of course, he was told to mind his own business. He might know more than anyone else about machine guns, but hadn't he been a chauffeur? But as we've said, these middle-ranking British officers could do pretty much what they liked. And one of the 7th Division officers now suggested quietly to Baker Carr that he could train a handful of men to use the few machine guns they had. Well, Baker Carr had a better idea. He proposed setting up a machine gun school for the whole army. The kind of thing, though of course he didn't know it, that the Germans did all the time. Somehow, Baker Carr negotiated the use of a base in Saint-Omer, 40 kilometres behind the line. And then he managed to beg two machine guns from an Irish regiment whose machine gunners had sadly been killed and whose officers therefore thought they had no further use for the guns. 
His first pupil instructors were actually volunteers from the Artists' Rifles, which was a regiment from the Territorial Army in which professionals from clergymen to opera singers and stockbrokers had enlisted as part-time soldiers before the war. Just couldn't make it up, could you? Perhaps they're the only ones interested in being pupil instructors. The school opened on the 22nd of November 1914. But then Baker Carr tells how his team had to tour around divisional and corps headquarters, advertising his school to each of those independent-minded gentlemen officers, like some detachment of commercial travellers. Nobody, of course, could order the officers to cooperate. Baker Carr would try to argue with them that using machine guns cut the number of men that were acquired to a fraction of what it had been. He told them that six machine guns properly used had the firepower of an entire battalion of infantry. Well, they should have listened to that. That was significant since the army was desperately recruiting and training hundreds of thousands of men to replace its heavy losses and to fight what was clearly going to be a very extended war. But the officers weren't interested. Nothing is more discouraged in the army, wrote Baker Carlita than a departure from the well-worn path of tradition. What shall I do with the machine guns today, sir? Would be a question frequently asked, wrote Baker Carr. Take the damn things and hide them, was the officer's usual reply. It was only when regiments were posted to the front line that their officers began to take the machine gun seriously. I wonder why. After all, they can now see for themselves the devastation that German machine guns were causing. In February 1915, the generals finally agreed to double the number of machine guns per battalion. Double them? Up to four. Four. But that wasn't the most difficult problem. To achieve those effective patterns of crossfire, one battalion's machine guns might be required to cover a neighbouring battalion's men. And of course, in an army commanded by British gentlemen, it was out of the question to tread on each other's turf. The solution would be to put machine guns under the direction of one overall machine gun corps. It was an idea that had been suggested back in 1911 by an engineer, Ernest Swinton. Who we will meet again in this story. He'd seen the value of the machine gun in the Boer War and in the Russo-Japanese War, in which he'd been the official British historian. By 1914, the Germans had organised their machine gun crews into a specialist corps. But of course, the British could do no such thing. Their officers were not about to tread on each other's toes. By the spring of 1915, the British Army had actually acquired nearly 300 machine guns. Uh, Baker Baker Carr calculated that a fully functioning machine gun corps would require 20,000 guns and at least 40,000 men to fire them. Well, he put together a detailed proposal and dispatched it to the generals. By chance, he happened to be in the general staff office one day when none of the generals were around. The head clerk pointed to a black wooden box in the corner. It was marked of no further interest. In it were all the recent memos about to be shipped off for storage, and among them, of course, was Baker Carr's machine gun corps proposal. He discovered that it had been covered in dismissive comments. The machine gun was eh, much overrated. Two per battalion were more than sufficient. It was impossible, wrote another, to train the personnel during wartime. To better wait till peace? Uh, We should wait till afterwards. (laughs) So, Baker Carr rewrote 
and resubmitted his proposal. And in the summer of 1915, nearly a year into the war, the general staff at last recommended the principal of a machine gun corps to the war office. The principal? Privately, they believed Baker Carr's requests for such enormous numbers of men and guns would ensure the idea was thrown out. What happens next is actually quite a long story. If you never get hold of Baker Carr's book, it's well worth reading. It turns out it was Lord Kitchener, the Secretary of State for War himself, the man with, you know, your nation needs you and the big moustache, who overruled the open scorn of the senior commanders and saved the machine gun idea. He personally summoned Baker Carr to London. If the war has done nothing else, he told him, it's produced two remarkable dugouts, you and myself. He had a very high-pitched voice. He had a very high-pitched voice, he did. Which I can't do. In the teeth of opposition from the War Office, the Machine Gun Corps was at last created on the 22nd of October 1915. So that's over a year after the start of the war. And by then, the British had already lost something like 200,000 men. By the first day of the Battle of the Somme, 1st of July 1916, the British Army still only had 1,440 machine guns still fewer than two per battalion, and they started with 1.5. The Germans had 15 times as many. In the British Army, the individual officers still didn't understand how to use one of the most important weapons of the war. What this story of the machine guns confirms is that the British Army had not only long failed to grasp the significance of the mechanisation that had overtaken warfare since the late 19th century, but continued to be unable to learn from experience as the murderous months of the First World War went by. There was simply no will to try new methods or weapons and no structure for sharing best practice. It makes it appear that whatever historians like Amy Fox may maintain, the British army was conspicuously poor, hopelessly poor at innovation and learning. The tragedy on the Somme had its roots in these systemic weaknesses in the command structure of the British army. As we've said, the British army should never have been in the position it was in, scrabbling about at the bottom of hills, peering up at German fortifications in all the strategic locations. Nor should it have been trying to fight the Germans with old-fashioned weapons, when new and much better ones were available. Had the British Corps commanders understood the machine gun better, they wouldn't have sent British infantrymen across no-man's land, unprotected from the German machine gun crews, which was one of the direct causes of the ghastly casualties on the Somme. But as we've said, nobody could tell Corps commanders what to do. Historian Robert Foley is rather an admirer of the British Army's long and consistent history of producing people like Baker Carr, who came up from the ranks with bright ideas and had to fight their way laboriously through the gentlemanly amateurishness of the officers. Uh, seems to us to be the worst possible way to run an army. Goodness knows how many bright ideas were lost that way. And put in boxes. And how much time was lost. In fact, Foley quotes as an example he admires the very story that seems to us the classic example of the British Army's chaotic, stuck-in-the-mud failure to innovate with imagination, intelligence or efficiency. It is, of course, the tank. The British Army in 1916 was stuck facing seemingly impregnable German entrenchments, a situation that clear thinking and a healthy command structure would have avoided. 
The way it went about trying to break out of this confinement on the Somme in July that year only confirmed its inability to grasp what needed to be done. Now, we think of the trenches on the Western Front as stalemate because, for years, neither side advanced more than a few yards. But that's not to say that nothing changed. The American historian Jonathan Krauss makes the point, very good point, that the German defences kept evolving from an improvised mishmash of trenches at the beginning to an organised system with successive lines of fortification. Deep dugouts appeared many feet below the trenches. The German army became adept at placing its second and third lines of defence so that the British and French were lured into a predetermined killing ground where the German artillery, far behind the lines, was lined up to destroy them. What looks to us like stalemate was in fact what Krauss calls, quotes, a constant war of innovation, certainly at any rate on the side of the Germans. Well, what this meant was that the British army would need to be on its mettle to keep up. Disastrously, its habits of mind were backward-looking. As Major Baker Carr, the machine gun man, joked, quotes, in 1914, the British Army still was thinking in terms of the Boer War. At the beginning of the Boer War, it thought in terms of the Crimea. At the beginning of the Crimea, it thought in terms of... Waterloo in 1815. In fact, in some ways, as we've seen, in 1914, they were still thinking in terms of Waterloo, 1815. Now, we should say that once war broke out, both the British Army and the government were inundated by the public with inventions for tackling the Germans' trench system. One inventor suggested a kind of combined harvester to slice through the barbed wire. Uh, he overlooked, however, that the wire was fixed to heavy iron posts or pickets. Perhaps he uh, didn't know. Well, they would have broken the blades after a few seconds. Another inventor proposed a massive armoured drum to flatten the wire, driven by horses <laughs> hidden inside. <laughs> yeah, that's going to one American even suggested shells are filled with snuff uh, to make the Germans sneeze. I like that one. The Ministry of Munitions finally set up an inventions department, sounds like Harry Potter, in August 1915. That's August 1915, a year into the war. Mm. By the time the Battle of the Somme began, almost a year later, the new department had received 50,000 suggestions. As Maurice Hankey, secretary to the Committee of Imperial Defence... Which is kind of the committee which was in charge of all the forces. As he noted wearily, quotes, for the most part, it is found that the bright ideas of the outside inventors are not new and that the new ideas are not bright. The best idea, however, was bright and was not new. The tank. The idea of the tank had been around for years. It was apparently obvious to everyone, except of course the British generals, that war, if it came, would be fought in trenches defended by barbed wire. And the tank is the ideal weapon for the job because its caterpillar tracks the big metal things that go round the wheels, can cross muddy, uneven ground, crush barbed wire, iron posts and all, and then drive over the trenches. If they're big enough. If the, the tank is big, the tank is yeah. long enough, yeah. A French engineer proposed something along those lines in 1903. The same year, novelist H.G. Wells, often good at predicting the future, pictured an enormous motorised, tracked and armoured vehicle in his short story. The Land Ironclads, 1903. The British War Office had actually set up a military transport committee in 1900 during the Boer War, and they experimented with tracked vehicles, that's back in 1900, for hauling big guns over difficult terrain. 
In 1906, they were offered an engine with a chain track system, in other words, caterpillar tracks, by David Roberts, managing director of the engine and machinery manufacturer Hornsby & Sons of Grantham. The prototype was underpowered and frail, but the idea was clearly a winner. The committee reckoned it was, quote, the ideal tractor for military purposes. So, so what happened? So they commissioned two more prototypes, creatively codenamed, as you all imagine, Number two and... Number three. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's like those spies in, in, in our series on going to war in 1914. They've got great names. Yeah. Well, anyway, all three uh, prototypes made a deafening debut. The Royal Army reviewed Old Shot in 1908. They clanked past, pulling a dummy wooden gun. You can still see pictures in the old newspapers scattering turf everywhere to the astonishment of the king himself. Well, the press went wild. Footage of the Caterpillar cars astonished audiences on the big screen in London's Empire Theatre. And the newsreels, of course. It was shown to senior officers and to all the military attaches of the London embassies and legations. Quotes. Here is the germ of the land fighting unit when men will fight behind iron walls, wrote a journalist for the Morning Leader. The potential of the Caterpillar tractor, not just as a tractor hauling guns, but as a fighting machine was obvious enough to anyone with the imagination to see it. In fact, in 1910, one member of the Military Transport Committee proposed to Roberts of Hornsby and Sons at Grantham that he try putting a big gun aboard his tractor and then fitting with armour plating and turning it into, quote, a complete fighting machine. Hurrah! The tank had arrived. 1910. Except that the army hadn't paid Roberts enough to make the project worth carrying on. The artillery gave number three prototype one single day of trials hauling its big guns and then refused to use it. They said they couldn't stand the noise and the smell. So I suppose they'd rather stick to their horses. In 1911, the War Office therefore abandoned the idea of tracked vehicles for any purpose at all. Extraordinary. In 1912, the War Office received a proposal for an armoured and tracked vehicle from an Australian engineer, Lancelot de Mole. In fact, de Mol's vehicle was remarkably like the design that would eventually, after many months of experiments, finally be put into production in 1916. Talk about reinventing the wheel. It already the Caterpillar track. The Caterpillar track. It already had the two innovations that turned out to be key to success. An angled front for climbing out of trenches and a track that went round almost the whole frame, not the wheels. And a very long wheelbase as well, which is also important for getting out of trenches. In fact, the official commission on inventions that met in 1919 to reward inventors who'd contributed to winning the war, this committee conceded that Mole's design was, quote, a very brilliant invention, which anticipated and in some respects surpassed hmm, that actually put into use in the year 1916, end of quote. So what had happened to Mole's brilliant invention? Well, in 1912, <laughs> I can't believe this... The War Office, they didn't put it in that box. They just lost it, as in... Lost the proposal. Yep. Lost the plans. Lost the plans. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, they came across it in 1913. And um, then they what, turned it down flat. <laughs> <laughs> they turned it down flat. I <laughs> <laughs> As we saw in our last discussion, in 1912, the British Army had conducted an immense war games exercise. 
It had 2,220 horse-drawn carts, just 192 motor vehicles, that's including the staff cars, but no Caterpillar tracked vehicles at all. The British Army had completely thrown away its chance of achieving a clear advantage in modern mechanised warfare. Even though, as we show in our series on going to war in 1914, its senior commanders had been since 1910 reconnoitring, mostly on bicycle, the muddy fields of Flanders where they expected to fight the German army. Not one of them gave a thought to the usefulness of tracked vehicles. When the army wasn't thinking about horses, what it believed in was manpower. Wars would be won by men walking or running toward the enemy, protected by nothing more than their moral superiority or their fear of being shot as a coward. They didn't even give them tin hats until several months into the war. Now, to be fair to the British army, as we've said, all the European military in this period continued to believe that war, when it came, would be a war of movement. In the face of all the evidence, they still clung proudly to the illusion that they could outwit the enemy in quick and cleverly calculated manoeuvres. The notion of a trench-busting armoured vehicle was floated both in France and in fact in Austria, but neither was interested. Even the Germans, who thought much harder about trench defences than anyone else, were not interested in tanks. The French, however, by the time the war broke out, were using far more motorised tractors to haul their big guns than the British were. Even for moving big guns, the British were still in love with their horses. Faced with the infamous mud of Flanders, their horses, of course, sank. We've all seen the images. The most striking of them are from the Battle of Passchendaele. And that was in the second half of 1917. By that time, the war office had discovered that the English engineer Roberts of Grantham had sold his patents for the Caterpillar tracks to Holt, an American firm. The British Army had then managed very expensively to import from the United States a couple of thousand of Holt's Caterpillar tractors to help pull their guns. Uh, that was it. Too little, too late. As soon as the trenches appeared on the Western Front, however, at the beginning of September 1914, it had been immediately obvious to intelligent observers that a tracked and armoured vehicle would be the answer. A French colonel, Jean-Baptiste Etienne, had reported that, quote, victory in this war will belong to the belligerent who is the first to put a cannon on a vehicle capable of moving on all kinds of terrain. In that same month, September 1914, a British major, so quite a junior officer, called Ernest Swinton, was reporting on the Western Front. We last met him in 1911, recommending, you remember, the setting up of a machine gun corps. I mean, turned down. Oh, of course. In 1914, this troublesome engineer had been pushed sideways again into serving as the British Army's one and only official war correspondent. He was astonished at the destructive effectiveness of the German machine guns and the complete British failure to find any way through the barbed wire. The only British tactic seemed to be to use its field guns, artillery guns. But firing artillery shells at the wire was technically very difficult and often had the effect not of breaking the wire, but of tangling it up, making it even worse. And impossible to cut. Impossible to cut. We've all seen that wire. In October 1914, just 11 weeks into the war, Swinton was driving back to the channel from Saint-Omer and thinking about this he realised that the answer was some kind of wire-crushing, trench-crossing vehicle. He put it to Maurice Hankey, who was, as you remember, Secretary to the Committee on Imperial Defence, which sat at the top of all the armed services. After all, explained Swinton quite correctly, 
much of the groundwork with tracked vehicles had already been done before the war. Remember number one, number two? Number three. Mm-hmm. Hanky agreed. But by Christmas 1914, he and Swinton had met nothing but brick walls from the War Office, the Cabinet and the Army. So on Christmas Day 1914, the very day when the men in Flanders were climbing gingerly out of their trenches and exchanging gifts and playing football with the Germans, Morris Hankey sat down to write a long report. It was a last bid to get anyone to do anything about coming up with inventions to cross no man's land. His money was on what he called an armoured caterpillar, in other words, a tank. The very idea that had been ignored by the army on at least three occasions since 1910. If the army had at last taken up the idea even as late as Christmas 1914, it's just possible that the soldiers on the first day of the Somme, 1st of July 1916, would have been accompanied by a fleet of tanks crushing the barbed wire, sweeping the German trenches with machine gun fire. The slaughter might never have happened. But at the start of the new year, 1915, the War Office turned the idea down. Yet again. However, help and common sense was about to prevail. It came not from the British Army at all. It came from the British Royal Navy. Royal Navy, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or you can contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. And don't forget that it's easy to listen to a whole series. You just use the playlist you can find on SoundCloud and Spotify. There are 60 episodes and building. <laughs>